I'm Steve Conley from Flotsam and Jetsam. You're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to that which we like to refer to as Focus on Metal. Can you believe it? We are like almost out of May already, heading into uh, into June next week. Uh, year is flying by, probably driven by a lot of great metal releases. And of course, in June, the uh, long-awaited release from our, our buddies in A Sound of Thunder. That's right, it was metal, slated to uh, hit your metal ear holes in June. If you want to get an early preview of what is uh, there to be expected in uh, It Was Metal, you can head over to focusonmetal.blog blogspot.com and uh, I did an early review of that album uh, probably I don't know six weeks ago now but uh, yeah definitely there you can get the whole rundown on what to expect on it was metal and of course there's still time for you to get in on a couple of special editions as well you can uh, go to a uh, sound of thunder band.com and they have have some uh, autographed editions that are still available some vinyl all that good stuff you can order this thing up on amazon you can of course get digital copies at uh, itunes or at uh, apple music and also if you want you can uh, get uh, one of the uh, editions of the graphic novel as well as some other cool rewards on this project over at kickstarter just uh, search for it was metal. But uh, just be advised, if you want any of that Kickstarter goodness, you've only got until June 1st to make that happen. So this week, we've got another great guest for you. Then again, uh, have you ever heard of me uh, say, hey, we got a shitty guest for you this week? But another great guest this week as Richie has a conversation with Dwayne Barron. And uh, for those of you that are sitting back going, who the hell is Dwayne Barron? Well, let me tell you, Guy has been producing for quite a long time, producing, engineering, mixing, and uh, he's been doing a whole bunch of stuff. He worked with Dream Theater, did a few singles for those guys, as well as uh, doing producer of their uh, Greatest Hits compilation, work with Holland, work with Kick Axe on the awesome album Vices back there, did some engineering on that, did the engineering on Crocus's Change of Address, Work with Lion on uh, Power of Love as the producer of that EP. Work with Malice for In the Beginning. Engineered Marty Friedman's Tokyo Jukebox. Did mixing of uh, Theater Pain by the crew as well as engineering on 1987's Girls, Girls, Girls. Work with Motorhead. Uh, produced, mixed, engineered Overnight Sensation. Worked on We Are Motorhead. Worked on God Save the Queen single. Uh, of course, this week, going to have some Aussie stories because uh, Dwayne worked with Oz on uh, the No More Tears single as a producer and engineer. Worked as a producer engineer on the No More Tears album. Did uh, the uh, whole deal with Mr. Tinker Train as well as Mama, I'm Coming Home. The Perry Mason single and uh, also the Ozman Cometh compilation he produced that one did some work with quiet riot on the did the bang your head metal health single as an engineer come on feel the noise he engineered that single engineered metal health and also don't forget did some work with wasp as well engineered and mixed the uh, self-titled album as well as engineering inside the electric circus and uh, worked on uh Sleeping in the Fire and 95 Nasty. And I mean, I could keep going on and on, but basically, Guy has been a big part of metal history. And we have got Dwayne on the show this week. 
to talk all about that. So as I said, pretty good guest this week. But uh, before we settle down to a conversation with Dwayne, let's partake in a track of the week. Track of the week this week comes to us courtesy of Ross the Boss. Yep, back on uh, April 20th, he uh, released By Blood Sworn, a great new album from Ross. And uh, this one here did a lot of work with our buddy Mike LaPond in trying to initially get this whole thing going. But he's also got uh, he's got Mark Lopez on vocals as well as Lance Barnwald on drums on this one. And it's it's pretty much classic Ross the Boss stuff. You can hear a little bit of Dictators in here. You can hear a lot of Man of War influence in here as well, which is kind of obvious, right? But altogether, pretty solid metal album from Ross the Boss. And if you're curious about maybe being able to get out and see Ross, well, the U.S., most of the U.S. states have already gone through. But, uh, you know, in the summertime, starting in, in July, he'll be uh, doing the Rock Fest in Barcelona. He'll be doing the Alcatraz Metal Fest. And uh, it just kind of keeps going through the summer over in Europe. And he finally winds it up in uh, October doing full metal holidays. So, uh if you're in Europe, you still have a chance to see Ross out live. So as I said, solid release here. And uh, I think the, one of the things that Ross attributes kind of the, the sonicness of this one is the fact that rather than working with guys all over the world, it was all people that were uh, right around where he lived as well. So they were really able to work these songs up and get them tight and get them rock solid. So uh, from our friends at AFM Records, the brand new one from Ross the Boss. Title of it's called By Blood Sworn. And we're going to play the title track by Blood Sworn. Prepare your hearts for death, cold hands. Cast your souls to fate, bodies to the earth. Open thy arms to embrace glorious victory. Is that Dwayne? Yeah, yeah. How are you? Huh? Hi, how are you doing? Richie here for the Good interview. 
now is now yeah, a good okay. time. Now a good time. Are you okay? I think so. Okay. So one of the first things I always find when I'm interviewing the producers, there's three main reasons that they get into production that I'm finding. I'm just wondering which one applies to you. Like the first yeah. one is, the first one is that they they know they want to get into that angle and then they go to college and they study it all. And then the second yeah. one, the second one is they played in a band, realized that they couldn't make it still wanted to stay in the music business and then that was their avenue to stay in the music business and then the other one is they get a like a, a menial job working in a studio and then one of the guys the, the engineers pulls him aside and says look can you can you do this for me and can you do that and then over time they just they learn how to work in the studio so does, does any of those apply to you um not really <laughs> Kind of, kind of, I guess. I mean, for me, I mean, I, I started working for, uh, it's something I've always wanted to do. I mean, I remember uh, being in high school, but I, I was from Canada. I'm from Canada. Um, I mean, I remember being in high school. I, I took electrical electronics because I wanted to, like, pursue it in engineering. I worked for a sound and lighting company in Canada. I started working when I was 13. So I, I've been around the gear and PAs and, and stuff, like, pretty much my whole life. So, I mean, I was working boards before I was 16. Okay. So, I mean, it was something I always wanted to do, really. I mean, it's a weird profession. You know, I mean, I would tell my teachers what I wanted to do, and they'd be like, what's that? So I never even really went to school for it. So, I mean, by the time I got, I mean, basically, I mean, I was doing live tours. with. We, we, I worked for a sound lighting company. We were doing tours with everybody from Harry Chapin, Kiss, to Johnny Cash on. And we were doing all the Western, a lot of Western shows. In other words, the, the tours would hit hit the the border, and they would subcontract um, sounding lighting sounding lighting companies in Canada. Say they were doing a Western leg, they would just book like book these companies like our hours, like for four or five shows, you know, so they're short tours. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I, you know, so I started off setting up the gear and testing the gear in the shop before it went on the trucks and helped load the trucks. Then I started working on the concerts, you know, working side stage, you know, troubleshooting, setting up if anything went wrong, trying to troubleshoot your side, you know, to um, actually learning how to work the board. I mean, a couple of times, I remember one show we did with Iron Butterfly, um, they, the, the sound guy and the lighting guys got snowed out. They couldn't fly to the next city and we were driving. So I had to, that was my actually the first time I got to work the board because there's nobody to do it. So I did it. Yeah, how old how, how old were you when you did that? Like sixteen. Wow. So I actually moved to LA when I was seventeen, and to to pursue it. And so I got my first job in the studio. I think I was like eighteen, but being an assistant engineer. So probably my first hit, my first album. I mean, I was doing albums in the studio probably when I was eighteen or nineteen. I'm trying to remember the, the exact year, but. um yeah, so I guess my first hit was on like 21 or 22. That was Quiet Riot. Wow. So, yeah, so it's something I've always wanted to do. And I I, just, I don't know, I've just been doing it my whole life. I can't remember not doing it. Yeah, now now doing the Quiet Riot record, um, were you just hired because you were the, the, the engineer in the studio? Or did you actually know Spencer Proffer before then? Well, no, I worked, Spencer had a production company and, and a label deal, it was Pasha. So he, had, he owned a studio, Pasha, Pasha Recording. So actually how I met Spencer was, uh, when I moved to L.A., I was living with a bunch of musicians. And one of the guys, a keyboard player, he worked with this guy called Phil Kelsey. 
and he had a production deal with Spencer. So I helped this guy. He was building a home studio. He lived in like Encino. And, you know, he was doing pretty well. So he had a lot of bank. And he was building a home studio. So I helped him build his home studio. And um, I mean, so you know, I mean, I was always, I mean, I know that a studio is the same as a live show, right? It's all about signals. Yeah, the signals both the same. So I helped him build a studio, and I was doing the wiring for a studio. And you know, I didn't ask him to pay me, and so he did it a favor. Like instead of paying me, he hooked me up with Spencer. Spencer was building Pasha his studio, and they were looking for people to work. So I got a job as an assistant there. So that's how I met Spencer. And Spencer's engineer was the guy who actually built the studio, and which is a guy I learned off of for a few years. And then, um, I don't know, I was doing my own demos and stuff. He had two rooms, so we were allowed to do our own demos with spec projects. And he was doing Billy Thorpe, and Billy Thorpe wanted to try some different engineering. So Billy walked by the studio I was working in, and he was like, let's try Dwayne out. So that's basically how I ended up working with Spencer. So I did a, like a, you know, just a, a trial um, a tracking day and then Billy liked it and Billy wanted me to do the whole album so I did that and after that Spencer was kind of like okay I want to use you for all my stuff so that's how that started yeah. so and then actually actually, me and Spencer went to see Quiet Riot they were called Dubrow went to see him at the country club they started off as a spec deal so we did them under Dubrow and then uh, I guess Rudy was in Aussie at the time Rudy Sarzo and Randy, because they actually started Quiet Riot with uh, with Dubrow, with Kevin. So Kevin wanted to change the name, but they all own the name. So I guess Randy and Kevin own the name. So Randy gave Kevin permission to go back to Quiet Riot. And actually, Randy was going to come play a few solos to the plane crash happened. Yeah. So that was that whole connection with Quiet Riot and Ozzy and Rudy. And... Yeah. So how... how... Dwayne, how did you end up working with Tom Werman? He called me. It's funny. I guess, um, oh God, what was his name? Um, the, the guy who used the English guy, Scott, forgot his name. Can't believe I forgot it. But, um, can you remember his name? Well, sorry, which guy? The guy who did uh, Shout the Devil. Uh, what's his name? And, oh, Tom Werman. Tom, Tom Werman. No, no, not Tom Warman. Tom's engineer at the time. Tom was switching oh, engineer. Oh, I can't remember. I can't remember the engineers now. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I'm drawing a blank. Yeah. Anyway, so Tom was looking for a new engineer, and he just called me, you know, and asked me if uh, I'd come down and do an interview with him. So, I, I, you know, I was like, yeah, okay. So I hooked up at his place in Studio City, and his office was his garage. So he's like, you know, just wait in your office for a minute for me or two, and... Uh, so I was in his office waiting for him. I was looking at all, at all, all the platinum records, right? Mm-hmm. From the new Jews, the cheap tricks, you know, I mean, everything. And um, so he came back in the room and I couldn't help it. I just looked at him and I went, dude, you produced my fucking puberty. <laughs> and I got a job. <laughs> <laughs> now, well, I, mean, I swear to God, that was the first line out of my mouth to him. <laughs> you know, well, and then after that, he, huh? No, go on. No, that was it. Like, Blue Oyster Blue called, I mean, everything that was on his wall. Holy shit. I mean, that was my whole teenagehood. Yeah. Now, you know? what's the biggest difference between the way Tom produces and the way Spencer produces? Spencer, um, Tom was more about letting the band be the band. Right? So, I mean, I think Tom had a better feel for, um, 
And don't get me wrong, they're both really good in their own way. But Tom Tom had had, had a better feel for it being letting the band be the band and getting involved and feeling where the band wants to to go and then work on that direction. Spencer was more of a control freak, more of a like a one sound kind of thing, you know. Um he was more into molding bands to his vision, whatever that vision was at the time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah. So that that that's the biggest difference between the two. Yeah. And I've actually interviewed Tom Werman, and um, yeah, we talked a lot about Motley Crue, and I asked yeah. him the the biggest difference between working on Shout at the Devil and Theater of Pain, and he had a one word answer was heroin. And you, you you engineered that record, and it must have been difficult to get a performance out of the band on that one. I think they were a little more scattered at that time. I think even more so on uh, uh, Girls, Girls, Girls. Um, I don't know. I mean, I just I was I was the new kid on the block, so I, I just kind of kept my mouth shut, just did whatever I was told. You know what I mean? That was like one of my first records with Tom, my first record with Motley. So I didn't really notice any of that. By the time we hit did Girls, 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 I was a lot closer to the guys and everybody. So you know what I mean. So yeah. I probably felt more, saw more going on through Girls, Girls, Girls than I did with the um, Theater of Pain. Yeah, the, the thing I love the one thing I love about Girls, Girls, Girls is um, I love Mick Mars' guitar sound on that record. Was that was that easy to get? Yeah. No, I don't. We we're just playing around that. I mean, by that time, we had more of a license, you know? I think I was a few years older and worked with the band, I, you know? I, I wasn't, I'm shy by nature, but, you know, it was more, more, we were friends at that point. So it was easier to sit down, okay, let's fuck around, let's do this. Communication was better, you know what I mean? I think the first, um, either pain was more just feeling each other out. It was all our first records. It was their third sophomore album. Etc. I mean, there was a different pressure on theater painters than Girls, Girls, Girls. I think Girls, Girls, Girls was more of a license to let loose and just try some shit. idea was it to put jailhouse rock the live version on the end of it was was that because they didn't have enough songs i don't honestly i kind of don't remember i think that was the plan right from the get-go if i can remember correctly yeah 
you just brought that up, and I was, I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that was even on there, but yeah, I, I, I kind of remember it being part of the plan. I don't know. Tom would know better than me because Tom was more in charge of what was going on and what was going off on the yeah. album. Yeah. But I seem to remember Nikki and Tommy talking about it a lot. Okay. In fact, I'm, I'm trying to remember even what show we took it from. <laughs> yeah, so you did, the, you did the Poison album as well, open up and say, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. When you heard Every Rose Has Its Torn, did you think, oh, that's a hit, straight away? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. <laughs> no, absolutely. That, that was because uh, uh, Brett played it in the, the control room on the acoustic. And yeah, yeah, I thought it was a hit. I don't, I don't know if I thought it would be as big as it was. I mean, a, a hit to me is anywhere at say top fifty, but I didn't expect it. I think it went number one, number yeah. one or two. But um, I didn't expect that. Yeah, was was that? Actually, in- I didn't expect that record to sell what it sold in general. But I guess it, I mean we had a lot of singles, but I guess it did great. But. Yeah, was that an easy album to make? Like, were the band um, performances out of? I think the songs are pretty together. I think, I think back in those days, the hardest thing is like you don't have the technology you do now. But you know, you have to sit there and get performances. Um, yeah. And I don't, you know, nothing against Brett or, or Vince. They weren't like the best best singers on the planet. They were more field singers. So you know, I think it was just yeah. the performances over and over and over again. You know, on analog. I, I thought the songs on uh, um, uh, Open Up and Say All oh, were pretty together, though, in general. Yeah. You know, they kind of knew what they wanted to go with everything. Yeah. Okay. But, I mean, it's funny, because with a lot of those bands, the, the guys weren't really around. You know, I mean, Tom would just have one guy at a time. One guy was working on his bits, and that was it. So it just kind of, I don't know, things just kind of took their own course. Same thing with Motley and, and Girls. Mm-hmm. Like that, except for Tommy was Tommy was in the studio every day, but other than that, he never saw anybody really, unless yeah. they were doing something. Yeah, he's um, I, I have I think he's a monster drummer. Love his drumming. Oh, I love Tommy. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, he's very um, very up kind of a guy. A lot of energy. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. He's like a puppy dog on heroin. Not heroin. He's like a wired puppy dog. <laughs> <laughs> so. So was it around that time where you, where you met John Purdell, around the time of Open Up and Say Ah? Uh... I knew John from the Quiet Riot days. And uh, actually, John worked on Girls, Girls, Girls with us. Okay. He was doing keyboards and backgrounds. Actually, all, all the like the Girls, 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 all those backgrounds, John. Okay. So John was doing backgrounds. Um, I knew John from uh, Pasha back in, you know, he was doing some stuff with Quiet Riot. And I was doing actually some demos. I forgot the name of his band, but Pete Torpy, or Pat Torpy, not Pete Torpy, Pat Torpy. They just died, I guess, the mm-hmm. other day. Yeah. He was the drummer, and Chuck Wright was the bass player. And uh, John was keyboards. I forget who was singing. I can't remember the singer's name. But they had a band, so I was doing some stuff with them. Because Chuck was, there's a funny story with Chuck. Chuck was in Quiet Ride, then he was out of Quiet Ride, in Quiet Ride, out of Quiet Ride, depending on where Rudy was. And uh, so I was doing demos with them. And so I knew John from that. And uh, Tom was looking for a guy to do some keyboards and book background. So I was like, well, you got to try this guy, John, out. You know, so he brought John in on that. And so just kind of molded in with the two of us. 
Okay. And, then on him. and then me and John ended up just producing records together after that. And then well, for a while, even with Tom, the two of us, we'd do half the album. Tom would do half the album. It, like, I guess, with kicks and stuff, we started splitting the production up. Yeah. And now, so that just evolved from that. Yeah. Now, what was John really good at? That, that was, like, he was better, better than you now when it came to co-producing. What were you better than him at? And what uh, was he better I, I than you at? Team, I wanted to team up with Tom for a couple of weeks because every producer I worked with, right, and it wasn't just Tom and, and Spencer. I worked with a lot of guys over the years. Um, I just felt that most of them had a weakness. Like, some were really great in music, some were on the music side, some were more on the technical side. I don't think I really ran into anybody that was doing it all. You know, um, they, one would either, you know, have, to, have to either rely on on a musician or you'd have to rely on, on your uh, engineer. So I asked John if he wanted to produce records together because I thought that would be a great team. We'd have it all come. And plus, you know, we were best friends at the time. And so that's why I brought John. I actually, so I, had, I actually, our manager called me up. To, he wanted to uh, manage me. And I, I brought John to the, to the lunch. And I was like, well, if you're going to manage me, you got to manage him. That's the deal. He's like, well, who's John Purnell? I'm like, trust me, if you're going to manage me, you got to manage John. And then that's how that became. Okay. Yeah. Uh, like, was it difficult then? Because, like, John, I'm not saying John was an unknown name, but he probably didn't have the name that Tom or Spencer had. When you when you put your, the two of you guys out to produce an album, what, what, was it difficult to get your first job in the beginning, or was it relatively easy? It was kind of easy because we morphed it from Tom. So working with Tom, I mean, John was in the studio every day because that's when we started fiddling around with triggering and, and keyboard shit, emulators. And so John was pretty much at the studio every day anyways. So that it, what, it just kind of morphed into Tom was kind of like cooling down and um, not really wanting to do as much. He was kind of like into a semi-retirement mode or thinking about it. So we started cutting deals. It was like, okay, you guys produced three songs. You guys produced like, uh, like LA Guns. I think we produced half the record, and, and he produced half. Uh-huh. And I would engineer the whole thing, but me and John would produce half, and then Tom would. So we already had stuff under our belt through that. And, and you know, it's a small town. You know, so we already had a reputation. People already knew who John was. You know, at uh-huh. that point, yeah. The labels knew who John was. My manager knew who John was. Labels would come down to the sessions. They'd beat John. So, no, it wasn't really that hard at all. Now, when you and John started producing yourselves, did you yeah. change the research you did on a project beforehand? Because before that, you would have Spencer probably would have done a lot of the research and Tom, and now you guys were doing it. Yeah, I think with Tom, again, what happened was Tom started bringing me to pre-production more. And, uh, you know, so I got to sit in with that. And then, then again, we were splitting production. So he'd play the demos to us and be like, okay, we don't pick songs like you're picking a team. <laughs> so we'd be like, okay, we want to do that one. Tom's like, okay, I want to do that one. And then we'd be like, pick that one. We want to do that one. He's like, okay, I want to do that one. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think by that point, pretty well versed in what needed to be done. Um, I don't know. I, did, I mean, I did my own thing. I mean, I would research things my own way like Ozzy and stuff, or have my own vision and compare it with John's. Yeah. Now, now one, one of the things a lot of the producers have said to me, like Mike Frazier will be one, is that every single band wanted to record live off the floor, and they realized pretty quickly they couldn't. Did you get the same, right. you have the same experience? Yeah. 
Yeah. Life, sex, and death. <laughs> no, every <laughs> band was kind of like that. Um, I, or the other thing I was thinking about the other night, I don't know I don't know why I was thinking about it, but I just was. I was like, it's so funny because I think about I was watching a, a Beatles uh, documentary, and they were saying how when they did live, they really hated doing live, and they did the American tour, and then after that, it's like they just wanted to make records in the studio because they didn't feel that playing music was making music. And uh, that made a lot of sense to me. I think I think one of the fights we always had with bands was how are we going to do it live, right? Well, we can't do that. We can't add that because you know we can't do it live. And I always would argue back, well, that's your problem. You have to figure it out. We're making the record, so it's two different things. Yeah, but on the other hand, you're going to have the record company saying, look, we want the hit. We don't care what you layer away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know. Like, like again, live is playing the music, uh, making the record, you're making the music. It's two different things. And, and actually, when I heard the Beatles say that, I went, that's so true. I mean, that's, that was a fight that we used to have with bands all the time. And I'd be like, what do you mean? You, you don't want to do this and make the song better because you can't do it live. Well, figure it out. Do it. Yeah. You know, even, even Motley got the nasty habits and shit and hired people, you know? Yeah. Because they were actually, they would do that. Like, how are we going to do it live? But they figured it out. It turned into a better show, actually. Mm. What 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 was your take on bringing in uh, session players to play parts of the songs in the studio that you felt the band couldn't do? I was never a huge fan of that, you know, and we rarely did that. I think Spencer might have done it more than Tom. I mean, Tom would hire the odd keyboard player because knowing your band could play keyboards, but I don't think Tom ever hired a ghost guitar player. So, you know, if if, if the guy was weak in an area, you just sat down and worked with him until you got it. Yeah. You know, um, I, I was never a fan of hiring people. I was more into you know, the band being the band. Yeah. What What about bringing in outside songwriters? I was never a fan of that either. Okay. That's more yeah, of a, like, that was a record company thing, was it really? That was totally a record company thing. In fact, when we were doing um, Heart, one of the, the criteria with Heart was because they were tired of using writers and writers and writers and writers. And they, they you know, in their own right, they wrote, some great stuff in the past so one of the criteria with them was okay we want to do an album but we want to write it and me and John were like okay you got it and um, the songs were great I mean we didn't there was no time limit the songs were great and I loved the album and then of course on the 12th hour it was after label hearing a song they throw a Mutt Lang song at us you know and that we had to do it and and kind of refused to sing and you know I, I felt bad I, I felt like we broke a promise to them we were like Totally. It was, that was a have to. And they were like, girls, it's not going to be a single. We got other singles. And sure enough, it was the first effort single. Yeah. So we got kind of, yeah, so that really effed us up. And I really think the album in general was way better than that, you know. I think that album is superb. So, um, Dwayne, whose idea was yeah. it to bring Lane Staley to sing on that? Uh, that was Anne, Anne and Nancy. Well, originally, Chris Cornell sang that, Ring Them Bells. Yeah. So we did a version with Chris. Oh, wow. Amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. They did it live. The three of them was freaking awesome. And uh, Chris's wife didn't want him to release it. You know, I guess it didn't, like, fit in with what he was doing with Soundgarden. And because uh, she was managing him at the time. So, uh, so they ended up getting lame. But, I mean, they were all friends. Mm-hmm. I mean, we'd hang, every time we were in Seattle, we'd hang out with the Alpha Chains guys. And vice, you know, they were all pretty close. Yeah. Now, now one of the things I'm finding as I'm talking to guys who've morphed from 
mixer engineer to producer the thing the things they had they, they had tr- trouble getting a handle on in the beginning is they had to deal directly with the musicians and the musicians egos that like before that you probably wouldn't have had to do that as much that maybe tom and spencer would have done that or or someone else was that difficult for you in the beginning i think it was always that way because tom i think tom used to let us fly the ship a, a lot by ourselves and stuff i mean you, you have that no matter what i don't know but that, that just came with the game i think I mean, again, I've been doing it for so many years. I mean, there was a time when I was a young kid on the block to be everybody's age to be the old man. So, I don't know. Yeah. I've never had a problem with that. I used to be in awe, you know. I mean, I think one of the, the coolest moments of my life, and I was like, I think about 20 or 21, having uh, Rick Derringer on my left side and then Jeff Beck on my right side doing a solo together. I was like, holy shit, this is freaking cool. I mean, that was a huge... <laughs> I mean, how can you not dig there he goes you know what i mean yeah so yeah, yeah. And what 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 were you like at deadlines because surely the record company had said terrible. that you were the terrible absolute, <laughs> the, absolute, the absolute worst <laughs> absolute worst is there any to this day when i'm mix, when i'm mixing stuff for people i'm still bad is there any album <clears> from back then that stands out that was really bad deadline wise bad no yeah that you went way over and it was like oh god we're never going to finish this oh heart Heart. <laughs> Heart, because we were kind of writing as we went along. Okay. So, um, yeah, I think Heart. Okay. Ozzy was pretty long, too. Okay. I just want to ask you uh, about a couple of the albums you did, Dwayne. Um, I don't want to keep you here all day. So, there's two albums you did with John that had different singers on it. Um, there's the Tangier Stranded record and the, the Britney Fox Bite Down Hard album. Which one of those was the most difficult to do, or were they both relatively easy? Okay, wait, wait, say that again. Right, you did Tangier Stranded, and had oh, a, yeah. they had a different yeah. singer, a new singer, and Britney Fox also had a new singer for Bite Down Hard. Oh, yeah. No, sometimes yeah, yeah, yeah. sometimes when you change singers, it can be, a, you know, it can be a little bit difficult that they're feeling each other out. Were, were those albums relatively easy to make? Uh, uh, I think Britney Fox is pretty easy. That was pretty straight ahead.
Tangier. Uh, that was a little rougher because I, I think the original singer was actually, I hate to say it, but a little more on top than the guy we were using. Um, I, I think he was like a little less in tune to what the band was doing. Brittany Fox again. I liked the guy. The guy, I forgot his name, but he was a really cool guy, the singer. He was really good and easy to get along with. And, and Brittany Fox? Yeah. Tommy Paris. Yeah. That's it, Tommy. Yeah. So yeah, I'm horrible with names, but yeah. He was cool. <laughs> Okay, so I, I want to ask you a little bit about the Aussie album, No More Tears. Um, yeah. What what album before then do you think got you the Aussie job? Or did he ever say anything to you? I have no idea. Okay. No, I, I actually uh, recorded an MTV thing for him years, like during Bark of the Moon Tour. Actually, um, that's when Motley was opening for him. Um, so... Uh, I don't know. I already knew him. They already worked together. Okay. I, uh, that's when MTV used to do these live uh, biscuit hour things or something. So I did a couple shows with them. I think it was Vegas and Utah. So, yeah. I don't know how we got it, to be honest with you. He came down and interviewed us. I met with Zach, had breakfast with Zach. And uh, the history, I guess, Sharon knew me from that other stuff. I actually drove on the bus with him when I did that. So we got the gig. I don't know. Okay, but then, then I they gave us demos and asked what we thought, you know, and um, which I thought was really good at the time. And then uh, the label asked us what we thought, because I guess the label wanted him to go more a uh, Black Sabbath route. You know, the label called and asked asked me what I thought of the demos from Sony. I forget who it was. I want yeah, I forget who was president at the time, but he he was like, okay, I want to know if you uh listen to the Aussie demos and what do you think? I, I was like, I think they're really good. I think we got something here. You know, they're really cool. Mm-hmm. Hung, hung up the phone and I didn't hear back from them. And I guess it went in with uh, Rick Rubin. And Rick Rubin, uh, Rick Rubin's vision was to do the whole Sabbath thing too. Then Aussie got pissed off. He was like, fuck that. Zach got pissed off. Fuck that. And they called us back. And then we did the album and uh, the record company didn't want to know. They didn't even come down or hear a note until we were like done. You're doing the final rough mixes. And then they were like, oh, wow, this is a great album. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah t- tell me about, um, you know, everyone talks about Ozzy. I've got a million Ozzy stories from a million different people. But tell me oh, about yeah. your memories of uh, Randy Castillo. Oh, he was great. Love Randy. Yeah. Great guy. I mean, I don't know what else you can say. Great guy. Great teammate. Great bandmate. You know, great drummer. I mean, there's nothing else you can say about the guy. Yeah. Okay. And you had um, Bob Daisley as well on that record. Yeah, Bob was cool. Um, they called Bob in only because Mike hadn't had enough experience. He had in the studio, so Ozzy was like a little nervous. He wanted to make sure he had Bob uh, or somebody experienced that he'd worked with before. Okay. Bob did great on that. Yeah, I love Bob. And actually, everybody in that album was a lot of fun. Yeah. And did Lemmy come to the studio at all? No. He didn't? Okay. No. Okay. So I met Lemmy a, year, a few years after because I ended up co-producing a couple things with Benson with some Motorhead stuff. Yeah. 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 Yeah, go so, yeah, Lemmy. <laughs> Yeah. 
I, w- I want to ask you, Dwayne, about the um, the foreigner record you worked on, the, the very best of with the three new songs. How, how did you end up working on that? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I, I think, I was, again, we would just get the calls. I mean, I ended up doing um, some, I don't think I ever got credit for it, but I did this Rod Stewart thing with Trevor Horn, uh, this old heart of mine. And, and I remember I was going to the studio and John was supposed to go with me. He had to go to the dentist, so I had to go by myself. I remember calling my manager because I was, really, again, shy and nervous. But uh, I have no idea how I got called for that. Okay. Yeah, and I was like, I'm doing Rod Stewart. Are you kidding me? And so we did it, and it was one of the best sessions of my life and working with Trevor. But uh, Foreigner, I don't know. We just got the call again. You know, they'd give us the demos. We'd come into pre-production, give her ideas, and if they liked it and we got along, then we just kept going with it. But we used uh, Fraser to mix that. Okay. And and how... Fraser. Like, huh? Yeah. How, um... What do I say this? How quick was Lou Graham to get the take you wanted? Because he's a phenomenal oh, singer. great. Oh, yeah. Easy. Great. 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 Easy, easy peasy, like Ann, you know. Ann and Lou are in the same kind of league. You do three takes, and usually you're trying to figure out and find the best one. And with those, you know, with them, you're trying to figure out what's the worst one. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can take any of the three. I mean, it's really, actually, it's hard. I think in some respects, they were harder to comp than somebody who couldn't sing. Because <clears throat> they were all so good. Yeah, exactly. And top to bottom. A to Z, because from top to bottom. Wow. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. So I want to ask you about the, the Still Climbing, the Cinderella record. Um, oh, yeah. I've had I've interviewed Kevin Valentine, and he said he recorded the drum tracks for it, and then someone else recorded them, and then Kenny Aronoff ended up recording them. Why was right. there so many drummers on, on that record? What was the problem? You have to ask Tom. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I love Kenny. I'm glad I got to work with him. And I think Kenny was an amazing choice, but that's a Kiefer thing. I think Kiefer and Andy kind of got into that way back in the day from the first album. I think Kiefer just had it in his head about having to have certain drummers or I don't know. Okay. That didn't come from us. That okay. came, yeah. It didn't come from me or John. Yeah, it must have been infuriating for you on some level, though, thinking you have it done and then yeah, you want someone else. A little bit. A little bit. But at the same time, you know, it's like, okay, it's your record. But yeah, okay. at the end of the day, it is theirs. You know, you can whine or complain all you want, but at the end of the day, it's up to them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I, w- I want to ask you, Dwayne, about the, the Dream Theater record, Awake. Um, oh, yeah. The musicianship for that band is off the charts. How do you tell them oh. that a take isn't good enough? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, you can, because they know it too. It's kind of like uh, being a referee in a basketball game, you call a foul, the guy knows the foul. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so if you, if you said do it again, they would know it. You know? Yeah. And sometimes they would say, let's just do that again. I mean, I remember going into pre-production with them, and one of, one of my things would always be, um, um, I'd always chart out the, you know, and I haven't played a song. I chart out the arrangements and make quick jots and notes and ideas. And I sat down with Dream Theater in, in pre-production, and they were playing their songs. I started charting shit, up and I like literally threw my book away. I was like, "Fuck this! You can't keep, <laughs> you can't keep up." Yeah, you know? I was like, yeah, they're amazing. Yeah. Now, is that is that a band that like you did track live off the floor? Um, no. 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 Okay. No, did the drums, bass, uh, guitar separate, 
you know, which I really like the guitar sound on that record. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think that, <laughs> that, that album is probably one of my favorite Dream Theater albums. I think it's amazing. I love that record. Yeah, that was a great, that was a great experience. And again, I, I think just being around them made it a great experience, you know. They were awesome, awesome yeah. players. Yeah. Now you had you had some co-writes on the Osmosis Aussie album, but you didn't actually work on it. And um, how how did you get well, the co-writes? We did. Yes. Well, we did. We actually started Osmosis. Oh. And um, we were doing it, and we and actually Perry Mason was our idea. Like they used to have just title running title songs, and uh, so. Um, they did this track. It's just a, a running name called Perry Mason. And I made a joke. It's like, if anybody can get away with calling the song Perry Mason, it's you. <laughs> you know? So let's call it Perry Mason. And John wrote the lyrics for that. So we actually arranged and did all that. And then we were about halfway through the album. And uh, I called Sharon. And I was like, we don't have enough songs. We're not there yet. Because they were like, okay, when can you guys finish? There's a deadline, deadline, deadline. And I, I think I kind of <clears throat> signed my own death warrant. But I was like, we're not there. We're not here. We're not there. And, and you don't have a full record. So we kind of, they didn't believe us. See, before they didn't think they had a full record, they had the full record. Then we told them they didn't have a full record, but they thought they had a full record. So we got kind of canned on that. But a lot of those arrangements, if like we ended up mixing the album, and sure enough, when the album was done, it wasn't a full record. So we were kind of set up, me and John on that. Like we, they, they had us finish the album. Like, okay, just finish with what you got and we'll see where we're at at the end. Finished the album, the label was like, well, this isn't a full record. Like, well, we told you guys that, like, halfway through this, that we didn't have all the songs. And I just got all pissed off. You know, I guess I was too honest at that point, you know. Yeah, I but, yeah we did period. We did a few of them. And, and so we wrote, uh, you know, co wrote some of the songs as we were working on them, you know. Um, and they were already arranged and recorded. And, and funny, half of them. I started, you know, they just basically like even Perry Mason like directly copied our arrangements and our production on it, and then they added a few new songs. So that was a bit of a sour note. That yeah. one. Yeah, I know. Um, I know Ozzy's come out since a lot of times and said he did, he doesn't like that record. He didn't like the experience of making it overall. I know it started off great, and then it just turned into more of a, a an administration call between Sharon and the label. And and I and I believe it. At that time, our our manager had a huge fallout with Sharon. It, it, it got very political. Okay. So like I said, we already completed half of it. They all they did was copy it, and then they added a few more songs. So no, it wasn't a great experience. What about the direction of that? Because it's been said over the years that they were pushing for they wanted like a grunge sounding record. Did you ever get 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 anyone saying that in your ear? No, they want to, when we were first hired, it's like, I don't want to change anything. I want to do what we did on No More Tears. But then No More Tears, I thought the songs in general were a lot better, a lot stronger. So that was my case. When we were already well into the second one, I'm like, we haven't got the songs nowhere near as good. It's not going to be as big, I'll tell you right now. Okay. So I was like, oh yeah, just finish it, just finish it. And we're like, okay. Finished it. Oh wow, this one is good. Okay, thanks. Like I said, we were set up, you know. Yeah. I mean, the the label didn't want us to do no more tears, and then they didn't want us to do the next one either. And what's his face? Uh, um, Oh fuck, the the A and R guy. Don't forget, he was also Mr. Grunge A and R guy. Uh, You know, he had Pearl Jam and stuff at that time, so everything was like he was like the grunge hero. Okay. Goldie. Goldberg. Goldberg. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 
And who, when you were making that record, did you have Geezer and, and Dean playing on on the demos? No. For osmosis, no. Yeah. Who was a, who was a, who did you have in the band? Was it, it was still a, Randy? It was the band. It was the same guys. Okay. It was it was Mike, uh, uh, Randy, and Zach. Okay, because it ended up with Geezer and yeah, again, again, Dean that, whole, that, that record started off one direction, and it just freaking turned into another direction. And what was crazy is everybody left us alone and no more tears. And they hated it, the idea of it at the beginning. Then they they all like took credit for it, like we knew it all the time. And then they tried taking control of second record. I think they totally effed it up. <clears throat> okay, you know, too many decisions. Yeah. Now you you did after Osmosis one of the albums you did you did another Poison record, uh, the Crack a Smile yeah. album. How, how different yeah. were the band from when you when you first recorded them in eighty seven eighty? Well, way different because they had blues and not CC. Yeah. You know that's right off the bat. That's a huge difference. Yeah. So, you know. did you get any inkling at all when you're making that 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 record was going to be shelved? Uh I don't know. Maybe. I mean, it was a very different time. Things were really changing drastically at that time. I mean, it got shelved and it got released. Yeah. You know? So, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think, don't know. I think it came out in, like, the early 2000s. Yeah. Yeah, and it actually did really well. Yeah, it did. And then I think a lot of the songs on that were on their greatest hits and stuff, so it kind of got released in sideways. But, yeah, I, nothing surprised me at that time. Things were really in, in a weird state with, with that, those kind of bands. Yeah, at that time, did did you did you feel that maybe yourself and John weren't getting looked at by a lot of different genres of music because you'd done so much of the hard rock stuff that was kind of out at that stage? Uh, I think so, and I think we could. We, I mean, we tried tried moving, you know, moving aside and trying different things. You know, I think we were, but then then John, I don't know, John's mindset kind of got relaxed too. I, I don't know. I mean, it was kind of time for both of us to kind of move on. Yeah. And we're better on that time. But I agree. I think we were overlooked and we should have been able to do it. Especially us, too. Yeah. yeah. I think, I a think lot we of- took a lot of bands that were just normal hair bands and kind of twisted them around or kind of kept them up to date, you know, including Ozzy. Yeah. Now, I just have a couple of questions to, before I leave you go, Dwayne. Um, do you ever remember any band? coming to you that asked you to work for them and you couldn't because of scheduling and, and the album they did be, became yeah you, you too oh you're kidding me me being from Ireland yeah. and you too asked you Jimmy to Iveen, Jimmy Iveen called this is before cell phones but Jimmy Iveen called me at the studio I was working on Poison at the time with Tom and I had Tom sitting next to me Iveen tracked me down at Conway called me in the studio studio phone I pick up the phone Jimmy Iveen so I'm talking to Jimmy next to Tom and he was asking me to mix Rumbling Hum. He's like, I need you to mix. Can you mix this? I'm like, okay, yeah. Yeah, what do you want? They want it like next week. <laughs> I'm like, I can't. I said, I can't. I'm like right in the middle of this. I really can't. I'm like, can you hold it off? No, no, we need it now. You know, we've got to do, do this now. I've got to do this now. I'm like, I can't, I can't. And he said, okay, well, sorry, you know. You know and uh, thanks anyways, blah, blah, blah. Maybe I'll call you again for something else. I'm like, okay. I hung up the phone. I looked at Warmer. I went, I hope you know I just fucking turned down you too for you. <laughs> and Tom looked at me like, you what? <laughs> well, that's loyalty yeah. right there. That's a true story, yeah. Yeah. It absolutely happened exactly like that, too. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you. Oh, and the, the killer was they ended up mixing in the studio next to us at Conway. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, so I got to meet the band. 
I was like, shit, talk about throwing salt in the wound, you know? Oh, <clears> God. But I, I, I couldn't. I, had, I was committed to, to Tom, you know? Yeah. I remember when I interviewed Bob Rock, he said that the one guy that kept calling him and he was in the middle of doing projects all the time with the same thing, I need you next week, was uh, Prince. Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, he, he, Prince had called yeah, him. Yeah, same thing. And say, I need, I need, can you produce my record? And Bob would say, yeah, when are we doing it? And he'd say, next week. He said, well, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It was exactly that. Yeah. And I yeah. get Tom's face. Because Tom was like tapping the, 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 the thing, the table next to me and shit. And I was like, I hope you know I fucking turned down YouTube for you. <laughs> He's like, what? <laughs> yeah. So, so just to wrap it up, Dwayne, do you have an album that you worked on in that 10 or 15 year period that you're most proud of? Oh, God, I don't know. That's a tough one. Uh, that's a hard question. I'd always say my favorite record is the one I was working on. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that's a tough one. Because I don't know. I mean, the Foreigner thing was fun. I, I did a Tracy Chapman record, which I thought was cool to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. I, I really don't have a favorite. Okay. I really, truly don't. And it's hard because sometimes I forget what I worked on and I'll be in a bar or something. And I'll go, shit, I done this song. And I'm oh, fuck, I did that. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, so I really don't. I don't have something that I just go, oh, wow. I, I have a lot of great memories, but that's about it. Yeah. They're all fun. Yeah. yeah. And like, are you still heavily involved in the engineering side of it? Or like, what, uh, what do you do? I do a lot of mixing. Okay. I do a lot of mixing. I, I would safely say that I've got one foot in retirement, one foot not retirement and like I'll say that's it I'm not going to do it again they're not accepted doing something here or there but pretty much I'm like chilled out like I said I started when I was 13 so it's a long time yeah yeah okay. I social G was probably one of my after I did that I was kind of like okay it's time okay getting done you need to get some daylight you're stuck indoors all the time exactly exactly <laughs> yeah, so I'll do mixing but that's about it Okay, just mixing. Okay. Well, yeah. well, Dwayne, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Okay. And, and um, thanks very much for, for, for all, all the time. And, and thanks very much for all the records, by the way. The lot of, all these albums I talked to you about, I have them all. Oh, that's awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. So thanks for all your work on those. So ha have a good rest of the day. All right, you too, man. Thanks all right, Dwayne, take care. Okay. okay. Bye.
Yeah, I couldn't resist playing a little bit of uh, kick axe there. The heavy metal shuffle off of the album Vices, which, of course, uh, Dwayne had a big part in making. So that is it for yet another week of Focus on Metal. Thanks again for listening to us each and every week. We definitely appreciate all the support that we get from all you guys out there loving the metal. And, of course, can't uh, forget to give big thanks to this week's guest, Dwayne Barron for taking a lot of time talking to Richie all about a lot of the great metal albums that he produced. As always, you can keep up with us at focusonmetal.net, focusonmetal.blogspot.com, on Facebook, on Twitter, you know where to find us. But uh, anyways, that is it for this week. That's right. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is indeed done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal... Have yourselves a great meta week, and until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.